Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It often leads to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. Uh, well, today we're going to take a little break from maybe the new hotness, but maybe it'll cycle back given the success of the game's Kickstarter, which once COVID slows down should start to land. But uh, I think it's one of those opportunities that um, since everyone's holed up to, to talk about one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, now, joining me today is a gentleman who has also enjoyed this game quite a lot, and a member of the Cast Dice family and listener of longtime listener of the show, Joe from Michigan. Joe Harder, how you doing, man? Oh, very good, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Oh, man. I am so excited to talk about the game we are going to rap about today. Um, it, it's, it's pretty special. Now, I'm going to ask you your experiences with that in just a second, but I think I should introduce what we're talking about first. Now... If I say the word Battletech, um, quite a few people will, well, a lot of people will get a lot of different ideas because the license has been out and about for a long time. People have talked about uh, the Warhammer 40,000 universe as being the most dense and rich background in gaming history. Um, of course, I think D&D might have something to say about that. But if you also think about it, Battletech is almost, in fact, I think Battletech is older. Now, it did sort of stop for a little while, um, but if you want to talk sheer number of novels, you want to talk sheer number of, I mean, even, I think there were comics at one point, there was a cartoon series, uh, there have been, I can't even count how many video games that were attached to both through the Mech Warrior, the Battletech, and various other titles, I mean, there are so many different ways to come at the concept of Battletech that I think it's kind of hard to start with. So I think just today we're going to focus mainly on the traditional game, the one that is called a game of armored combat. Now, of course, there's Alpha Strike, which is the more streamlined, uh, more modern tabletop version, and we will make reference to that throughout the episode, but we're going to stick to the more traditional rule set. They're still being played today, um, and we're going to talk about how that sort of original uh, and novel in today's gaming world, that a game, you know, 30, 40 years in the making, is still being played largely unchanged since it was written. Um, and, of course, we'll make references to the video games, but Today, we're going to talk Battletech. Now, given the game's history, let's take another step back. And Joe, what are your experiences with Battletech? I first encountered Battletech, so to speak, uh, back in like the mid-80s. I mm -hmm. can't remember exactly what year it was. It's like 86, 88, somewhere in that time period. Mm -hmm. um, it was right after they had switched the name from Battle Droids to Battletech. Yep. And I was in a local hobby shop in a break in between uh, university classes when I saw it on the shelf and looked at it. And it's like, wow, some of these, these, these almost look like Robotech, but this isn't Robotech. This is Battletech. Right. And I picked up a copy and dove into it headfirst. And it became a snowball ride mm -hmm. right up into the early 90s or so. Yeah. 
Um, I kept I kept up with everything right up and through the clan invasion, the clan invasion stuff mm-hmm. when it was still all owned by Fasa. Yeah. And uh, I have to admit, I tended to be a dirty clanner. <laughs> Uh, Clan Smoke Jaguar. Yep. They're my, you know, they're my boys. Uh, kind of took a hiatus though from it for a while um, after Fossa had, you know, tanked, so yeah. to speak, went out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, went back into it when they had the MechWarrior clicks out there. Oh, did you? Nice. Oh yeah, I, I played some of that too. Um, wasn't a huge fan of it, but it helped scratch the BattleTech itch. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but then, you know, I after probably about a year and a half or so of that, I it's like you know the Dark Age. I'm really not into it. And uh, once again, I was back on hiatus up until uh, the Clan Invasion Kickstarter was launched. Yeah. And then I dove right back in, you know, with a relish because, uh, you know, all the redesigns. I'm really oh, yeah. liking all the redesigns that I've seen. Yeah, man, they look so good. Uh, I have a very similar experience. Now, we're going to talk about some of the things that you just said there. I'm making notes as we go. Um, but my Battletech experience is fairly similar, except I think I'm slightly younger than you. Um, by a couple years. And so when I picked up uh, the Battletech box, it was right before City Tech came out and uh, Aerotech, because it was the original box games after Battle Droid. Um, and I picked those up when I was a younger, I was late primary school. And I picked up all those boxes and then moved to Japan. And so when I was in Japan um, in the late 80s, I spent a lot of time reading and playing Battletech, uh, either with my friends or uh, oftentimes, because we live so far away from other people, because uh, we lived on one end of Tokyo and it's a massive city and a lot of my friends lived on the other, uh, I would often have to spend, you know, I would spend time by myself uh, on weekends and I could play Nintendo and, you know, hang out with my family and we did a lot of great sightseeing and all that. But Battletech was a great game because it had a a small board size and our apartment in Tokyo wasn't large. And so I could spend a lot of time playing Battletech by myself. And it is a game that you can pick up and play solo, so to speak. Um, And so a lot of my love for Battletech was a personal experience, not so much tied to a gaming group or someone else. And so I ended up reading tons of the novels, tons of the background books. And it just became, as you say, I went up, I read up through the clan invasion and we'll talk about what that is. Um, but for me, I was always an inner sphere guy because I loved the warrior series of novels. Um, I mean, William Stackpole writes fantastic books um, and for those who aren't familiar, the, the Battletech universe is a lot more Game of Thronesy, um, like knights in space, than with you know political intrigue than the Warhammer 40k universe is in its novels. Um, but it, it didn't mean that there wasn't any action in it. Um, but anyway, I guess that was that's how I come at it. Um, now, I guess we should talk a little bit about the Battletech universe, because we've mentioned things like the clan invasion. We've talked about, um, we've mentioned the um, the successor wars. We've talked about um, all the different bits and pieces. So let's talk Battletech history. 
the BattleTech history, and I'm going to start way back with a quick zoom out. Um, BattleTech history sort of diverts from what we know as modern human history uh, in about the 1970s, where technology sort of takes a left turn. And um, somewhere along the way, humans come up with the technology uh, to create uh, warp-capable or jump-capable starships that are able to travel from one end of the you know, solar, or they'll make jumps from uh, solar systems to solar systems. So it leads to a, uh, a, a an expansion into the universe where the Earth, or as it's known because it's an 80s game, Terra, uh, sits in the middle. Sound familiar to Games Workshop, anyone? Um, but you jump, it jumps out in all directions. And um, that expansion sort of becomes what we call the inner sphere. Um, now, that is a huge collection of planets and solar systems, as I say, with Earth in the center that reaches way out into different parts of the universe, but it is still a set amount of space. Now, the on the edge of that is the periphery, and then beyond that, it gets into the wild worlds of unknown. So there's an element of science fiction to this. Um, but what makes it really interesting and what really makes the Battletech universe sort of the story different are I think the development of two big pieces of technology besides the jump capability and that's the uh, the it's sort of a, a communication device it's almost like a telegraph system where people can send messages from um, planet or solar system to solar system to solar system and it allows people to talk uh, in a way that is faster than um, you know having to wait however long it would be if you tried to beam a message from one planet to another, there's the inevitable lag. We see it in a lot of science fiction. Well, the development of that technology, um, along with the development of uh, artificial um, muscles, lead to the creation of uh, you know wonderful medical advances, but then everyone goes, hey, let's make walking tanks. And so we have giant robots. Um, so the technology because of this leads to um, the there are different countries and companies on the planet that sort of reach out and have their own sphere of influence in on the stars. They have their own planets. And that sort of turns into um, the development of um, houses or regions within space with its own political ideology. But they all sort of fall under one uh, star lord, so to speak. Um, and... There is a military for this whole area as well, led by uh, a gentleman named uh, Kerensky. And, uh, of course, Battletech fans are going to be yelling at me that I'm missing tons. But, uh, Joe, I think you'd agree with me that if we tried to do a proper lore podcast, that would probably take a year of episodes. Am I... Am yeah, I, do you it, want to add anything be, to what I'm saying? <laughs> no, it, it would be a very, it'd be a very long endeavor to cover the entire background. Yeah, it's it's wild. And I so we have um, these houses, and eventually the Star Lord is uh, deposed. There is a um, in a, a usurper. There is a coup, uh, and a guy named Stefan Amaris. Uh, kills the Star-Lord and all of his family, and then everyone uh, sort of, uh, the military rushes back from the edges of uh, the periphery where they've been fighting pirates, and they depose the the gentleman. And meanwhile, all of the heads of the houses then are, 
are vying to take because the the family of the the ruling class has been by the way this is very feudal have been eliminated it leads to um a lot of politicking to see who will take the place um the head of the military says i've had enough of this uh and kerensky takes the army uh with you know all of the standard troops and leaves the inner sphere and jumps out and disappears um, we then have uh, a, a long series, four wars in particular, um, where the houses are vying for secession. Um, they're called the Secession Wars. And that's the Battletech universe that I'm most familiar with, is the later Secession Wars, where you have knights almost. Um, you have nobility or rich who have these battle mechs, these giant robots that fight. Um, they're military units. It's very medieval um, it's very, as I said, very political. It, yeah, it's interesting to read. It, it's laid out very well in novels. And then, of course, we have um, the clan invasion where uh, the clans come back and the clans are the military unit that left under Kerensky. Um, they have, you know, basically through Darwinian uh, selection, narrowed themselves down to the best of they of their uh, genetics and then come back to reclaim the inner sphere um, and the inner sphere don't really want to be reclaimed and so there's a giant war there and then of course there it just goes a little left field for me as far as story goes but that's the basics um, Joe do you want to add anything to that because I think I just botched that terribly I mean, not really I mean the big thing is like you said the the clan invasion dealt with like the descendants of Kerensky and the troops that he left on an exodus with, and they come back to basically reclaim the inner sphere to rebuild the star league. But yeah, exactly, but it's, it's basically like, you know, leaving a country alone for, you know, decades and them getting used to certain ways of doing things. And then, the original people that live there coming back and saying, you know, we don't like how you ran things and, uh, you know, we can do it better, but of mm -hmm. course you have to be subservient to us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost that like expats who leave with these expectations and then come back and everything's changed and you go, wait a minute, this isn't the way I want it. Uh, and the other people say tough because this is the way it is. Uh, but it, you know, of course that conflict is now happening with giant armored robots. Um, now, I think uh, that gives our audience a basic idea of how this works. So a lot of the conflicts that you fight in the tabletop are either between the inner houses or the mercenary units that they employ and or if you're playing uh, in a time post-clan invasion, that's when you see uh, clan uh, mechs. Now, I tend to avoid uh, the clan era because when the clans came back, they came back with technologically superior uh, mechs and weapons. And so um, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I was very much into um, the balance of the game because I think that it was a pretty well put together game. And then, you know, the clan era is balanced within itself. But when you start to try and mix the two and you read it in the novels, uh, the clan mechs just walk through the inner sphere mechs. And so for me, I was always the guy going, you know, let's go back to the old ways. Um, but I can definitely see, I mean, the story, the technology, it's, it's riveting. It's great. And I love to read those books. So, I mean, for you, Joe, I think uh, you were very much into the clan invasion. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, and 
it wasn't it wasn't so much that it was that when it first came out i was like oh these are really cool yeah. i can just you know romple stomp everybody i play against and it, <laughs> yeah. i mean i i had actually read through like stackpole's novels mm-hmm. and so i was getting the background and the feel to the clans and if anything i really liked their martial point of view and i think that's why i tended to want to identify with them more and really if you if you kind of limit yourself to actually playing like 3055 when the inner sphere starts getting the same tech yeah it's not so bad no exactly but I think I'd stopped playing by the time uh, Michael Stackpole started to write novels in that time frame. Um, I think at that point, Warhammer had gotten its grubby paws into me fully, and I uh, had stopped reading the novels. Uh, but having gone back and reread them recently, yeah, that is a very exciting era, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, like I said, I really like it. And the the one thing that kind of hurt the original the whole original Fossa era is what I guess I can refer to it as clan invasion was they didn't use what's being used now, which are called like build values, mm-hmm. the BV values. Yes. So if the people didn't realize they couldn't really make a balance. I mean, they didn't exactly. realize at first that five clan mechs were worth eight to 10 inner sphere mechs. Right. Exactly. And, and now with the catalyst game labs, clan invasion era we're not going to have that problem exactly because of the build values yeah let's get into that because when when i was a kid and i'm sure when you were playing it earlier on as well you always um so mechs are typically between 20 and 100 tons 20 being light or recon mechs up through medium mechs heavy mechs and then uh, assault mechs are the you know i think they're 85 to 100 tons and those are like the giant walking tanks, heavily armored, giant cannons that can, you know, often one shot lighter mechs. I mean, they are brutes. But you always sort of in the original game, the way to balance that was you would have you would add up the tonnage. And so you would have like five, you could have five 20 ton mechs versus one 100 ton mech. And while it may not have been the most fair uh, matchup, it was reasonably balanced, you could say. Um, but it wasn't until the most recent iteration of the game, uh, or a more recent iteration of the game, that you got build values, which is what you're talking about, which, if you're familiar with other game systems, are just points. Um, and the points kind of line up with the tonnage, but not completely. And I think once you um, start lining up the clan technology as well, that really balances the field, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it makes a big, big difference. Well, that's the general outlook. So let's let's jump into the game itself. Now, as I said at the beginning, it's an interesting game system in that it has largely stayed untouched since the 1980s. Um, now, think about that. Think about how many times in... Uh, just take a game that has been around that long. Dungeons and Dragons has, of course, been around longer. Uh, Warhammer 40,000, how many iterations are we on of that? Eight? Um, Give and take many other expansions and supplements that have changed the rules again and again and again. If you open Warhammer 40,000 current edition and open Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader, they are wildly different games. Sure that there's a lot of similarities, 
but they are completely different gaming experiences. Whereas if you sit down to play the pullout, and I literally have over my shoulder my Battletech rules from that I bought when I was a kid, and I have the most recent Battletech rules, if you open them up and go page to page, the rules are largely the same, with, um, but they've been cleaned up uh, language-wise, um, and the FAQs have been sort of worked in over time, but you're still playing the same game. I mean, Joe, that's pretty wild, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, because I, just before I really start dove back into it i managed to find my stash of books and i had mm-hmm. an old copy of was it battletech manual mm-hmm. which was at the time the comprehensive rules thing and i got together with a local group and started playing some stuff and uh, i asked them it's like well how different are these rules now to the you know new more comprehensive rules and they said literally they're almost the same with exceptions to how stuff with infantry works mm-hmm. and like how the uh, anti missile systems work exactly but it's i mean like those all your are core even... rules are the same your piloting your gunnery mm-hmm. and the basic the way the i mean the game is largely mech on mech combat it's giant robots versus giant robots and those rules are almost identical which is just mind-blowing um now what that does lead to is a slight case of at least when i play the game and i don't say this in a negative way so careful i'm it does feel it doesn't necessarily always feel like a modern tabletop game Um, What I mean by that is a lot of modern tabletop games um, really go out of their way to be streamlined, um, if if that makes sense, like a really streamlined, fast gaming experience um, to make things short and sharp, easy to pick up and to go in. Now, Battletech is relatively easy to pick up, um, but it... It is not the most streamlined gaming experience, but because of that, it's got some layers that you may not see in a lot of modern game systems. For example, when you are playing mech versus mech combat, if my mech shoots at Joe's mech, um, you need to figure out the whether or not you hit, and we'll talk about that in a sec, but then once you actually hit and damage that mech, you actually roll to see how much damage you do but where you att- where you put that damage on the mech. So it's very granular. Like you can hit the left leg, you can hit the right torso, you can hit its head, you can hit, you know, different parts of the body. And each part of the body has its own armor value that you then tick down. And once you get through that, they get to the inner structure of the mech. So it means that you can have a gaming experience where you are playing four max versus four max. And four, if you're playing inner sphere max, Four is typically what you'd call a lance, which is your typical group of mechs. But it means that that could be a good gaming session to have four versus four. That might be a, a good you know, two hours, depending on how you are with the rules and how you're playing the game. Um, but you only need four mechs on a side. Whereas with a lot of other games, you, know, you might have 15, 20 models and you might be able to you know, work things out maybe faster but if you like that granularity, you're gonna get it. Would you? Would you agree, Joe? Yeah, that's one of the things I did like about BattleTech was yeah. you had, you know, that level of detail, and you know, and 
since it seems like it's kind of a good segue, if you want to play the bigger battles, that's what they made Alpha Strike for. Exactly. And with that, each mech has, rather than having body parts, each mech has almost damage points or hit points, um, like a total that you tick off. Um, and then that way it is, you can play instead of four mechs in a gaming session on a side or two or three, depending on how heavy they are or how big, you could run 12 or 15 on a side. And so it allows for a more streamlined, modern gaming experience. Would you agree? Yes. Now, yes. have you played Alpha Strike? I have not actually played Alpha Strike. Mm. I've I've watched it a few times Did because I. we have a local convention every year in Flint. Mm -hmm. And there's a gentleman that tends to run Alpha Strike at that convention each year. And when he's running Alpha Strike, it's I'm pretty sure he's running like a company of mechs on each side. Yeah. So Alpha Strike works good at a, in a con setting. Yeah, exactly. Because it isn't, you know, it isn't the highly detailed. That's right. And that's third for those wondering. Um, you said a battalion, did you say? So that's thirty. No company. Oh, sorry, company. A company. Sorry, sorry. That's twelve. Yeah. I was like, geez, yes. thirty-six mechs on a side. Whew. Um, that's that's a lot. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about what playing Battletech looks like. Now, another thing that kind of dates Battletech is that it uses, if you are playing the game of Armored Combat, not Alpha Strike. Alpha Strike, you run on just a regular, you know, your usual table with your grass and your hills and your buildings and all of that. It feels very Warhammer-y slash other tabletop game experience just for an analog for people wondering. Battletech, the original game of Armored Combat, is played on hexes. Um, which means it is very chess-like in its movement. It's very precise. You don't have to worry about line of sight. You don't have to worry about, um, oh, can I make it around this corner? Or rubber ruling is non-existent. Uh, in fact, looking at the time, you know, looking at this game, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it is it's kind of brilliant for this era where we're sitting around, um, often in isolation, because you could um, set up a Skype call uh, or a Zoom conversation and put a camera on the board and have an opponent m tell you where they want, as long as one of you has the board set up. Um, because it is literally a matter of saying, okay, I'm going to move forward two hexes, I'm going to turn right one, and then move forward one. That sort of thing. It is very precise. Uh, and I like that a lot. Um, Joe, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it really it takes away the whole... Um, I don't really like necessarily referencing 40K for this, but it really takes away the am I within charge range or am I not mm -hmm. because I'm like a 16th or an eighth of an inch away. No, you're using hexes, and it's you just measure the difference between the two mechs and hexes. That gives you your range. And I've seen a lot of people play video, uh, sorry, play Battletech, and I've played a lot, a lot of Battletech over the years, both um, with myself and with others. Uh, and I... I think this may be the system that I've had the least rule discrepancy slash debate slash conversation with. It is super straightforward. Um, and I, when I say that, I don't mean to say the game doesn't have its depth. Absolutely, it does. But because of the way it's laid out, it is very, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. It's very cleanly written. Um, and if if only, I mean, if since it's come out, it's if anything, it's gotten clearer. Um, and I think a large part of that has to do with it's using hex. 
Um, because I, I did, I have watched a few games of people playing Battletech without hexes, and it gets into some of the, yeah, well, then you just need to have a friendly agreement between people because, you know, line of sight gets to be a little different. And you go, okay, well, now it's starting to feel a little bit more like a modern war game, whereas with this, very clean and straightforward. Well, let's, I guess let's talk about the turns. So the turns breaking down into six parts. You have your initiative, you have your movement, you have a weapon attack, physical attack, heat, and end. Now, the initiative phase is interesting. Um, oftentimes with games, you have uh, systems where... Uh, a game's workshop system where everyone goes and then everyone else goes. So one player moves all of their things, shoots all of their things, assaults all of their things, and then the other person goes. The you-go-I-go system. Um, then there are systems that alternate. First, I'll move my unit, you move your unit, or you'll have the warlord system where you're pulling chits or dice. Battletech's interesting because at the beginning of each turn, you roll to see who pl which player gets initiative. Now, the, the player with initiative goes last. Now, you might think that's counterintuitive. But if you think about games like X-Wing, um, where the better pilots move later in the turn, it's because they have the experience to see where people are going, and that gives you the opportunity to outmaneuver your opponent. So having initiative is a good thing, because you make your opponent move uh, and or declare their shots first. Um, so you move everything, then, uh, so I move my, if let's say Joe wins initiative, I move my mech first, he moves his mech, I move mine, and you go back and forth until you run out. Now there are rules if there's unequal numbers to even that out, like I might move two and Joe might move one, um, that kind of thing, um, but that's just as an aside. Then you declare shooting. Again, the player who has initiative goes last. Now you might think, but don't you wanna shoot first? Uh, because that's how it is in X-Wing. But no, because in this system, you declare all of the weapon systems and where they're shooting, then you resolve. And all the shootings resolved simultaneously. So moving and declaring shooting last lets you see what your opponent's doing and lets you act accordingly. Uh, Joe, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it... Uh... It, like you said, it sounds a little counterintuitive at first, but it actually works out really well. Because since you, since everything is resolved, you know, at the very end of the shooting phase, it doesn't matter if your mech takes a bunch of damage, it still gets its full return fire. Exactly. Now, um, you, it may almost seem like, I know just saying that out loud made my sort of teeth itch as far as like, I have to remember how much. Um, but remember, you're only working with a small number of mechs per side, typically. Um, and the common hack for how the game works is, as you move, a common convention is to put a die, a die down next to the model to say how far it's moved. So you can remember, oh, this guy ran, or this guy walked, or this is how far they went. And so when you get to shooting, it's a lot cleaner about saying, okay, this is here, this is here, this is here. Um, and then when you actually resolve the shooting, it's a clever system in that, um, sorry, mechs that walk, or if mechs stand still, they have a better chance of hitting. If they walk, um, obviously it's harder to hit your opponent. If they're running, it's harder again. If you played the video game, you absolutely know how that works. Um, but also your opponent, the faster they go, the harder they are to hit. And there's a whole lot of, uh, 
hit modifiers. And so the game is actually interesting in that you roll 2d6 to hit something with a weapon system, not 1d6, because there are that many modifiers. But um, you use the pilot's weapons, or sorry, gunnery skill um, to sort of judge that, um, to see whether or not you hit. Um, so it can be, if you are first attacking this game for the first time, it can feel a little math-heavy when you're trying to figure out modifiers. But having played this against um, one of the Bacon Burgers, Rubes, a little while back, Ruben and I played a game, and it was the first time I played it against another human being in Battletech oh, for a while. Um, but just having that and talking it over with another person, within the first turn or two, it was second nature. It's just that first turn feels a little funny with, okay, what's how many do I add here? How many do I add here? But having those dice next to your mech really does help. Uh, and the game goes surprisingly fast once you just have those modifiers in mind. Would you agree? Yes. Oh, definitely. It just turns into muscle memory, right? More or less. I mean... In fact, it gets to a point where you almost have the whole hit location chart memorized, too. Right? Uh, I, I Again, just in that one game that I was playing with Rubes, and I had played some solo games uh, in the run-up to that, so I knew what I was doing. Um, but, yeah, I, I knew right off the bat those locations and went, oh, yeah, I know that that's a center torso. Or I know, oh, God, you hit my head, and I didn't even have to check the chart. You just know um, because you recognize it. Again, there are not that many... Uh, mechs on the table, so you get used to seeing how they work. Uh, yeah, so it's cool. Now, do you want to explain... I've done a lot of talking here, Joe. Um, sure. Do you want to explain a little bit about how um, piloting skill works? Because it's not just that you're walking around shooting people, um, How and your gunnery skill, while very important for that, uh, your piloting skill can be almost as important, if not more so, right? Yeah, it can. Yeah, especially because if you take a certain threshold of damage, I think it's like 20 points. It is. And that, then you have to make a piloting skill check to avoid falling down. Mm -hmm. And you need to make like piloting skill checks if you attempt the uh, infamous death from above. Mm -hmm. And you have to make your piloting check at the end of that, whether you're successful or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and once again, you because because if you fall down, you take damage yes. and your pilot can and your pilot can potentially get injured. And it's you know, it's it, it's a very bad thing to fail a piloting role. Well, it turns out um, that old adage of the harder they come, the harder they fall. Uh, the bigger your mech, uh, imagine these giant, you know, I, I don't even know how many meters tall they are, 10, 20 meter tall mechs uh, falling down. If you land on your head, it's going to be bad. And the heavier you are, the more mass you have when you land on your head. And so that's even worse. So you definitely don't want to fall down in this game. Uh, and yet, if you are running uh, in some urban environments, you can slip on rubble, you can fall through floors, you can, you know, trying to walk through buildings, they can collapse on you. You can, if you're trying to be cute coming in and out of water, I mean, there's uh, there's just countless ways where you have to take a piloting check and then all of a sudden, uh-oh, that's bad. Um, and you fall down or you're fine. So in that way, you it, it, there's... 
the game's interactive with its terrain in a really interesting way in that, you know, terrain can give you cover. It can also, um, you know, help you cool off and we'll get to heat in a minute or, you know, you can use it to hide. But it also you need to interact with it because if you don't do it properly, you're going to fall down and you're going to end up hurting yourself pretty badly. Yeah, it's like I said, it's not good to fall down. Now, you did mention, and if we're talking movement, we should talk a little bit about, you mentioned Death from Above. Now, that is a patented maneuver, like the old bootleggers reverse from Car Wars. It's one of those things that, uh, you know, the game system's known for, and I'm, I've seen on countless t-shirts. It's um, if, if your mech has jump jets. So some mechs have giant rockets attached to the back, and so they can hop from one point, point in the battlefield to another. And when they do... Um, you know, death from above is landing on another mech. Because um, if we've talked about just how much it hurts to fall down in one of these things, imagine if you're from even higher and you drop on someone else, that's bad. It's like the old Bill and Ted. Um, what was the t- uh, Alex Winter show, The Anvil of God, where anvils fall randomly out of the sky and squish people? Well, imagine it's a mech instead. So that may be a deep cut reference for those back in the States. But um, it's it's... It's, an, it's a great system in that um, it's great to jump. You can avoid a lot of terrain. It really helps you to be mobile. You don't need to worry about which way you're facing because you land in a different way. Uh, unfortunately, if you fail your landing, yeah, it's bad. It's like a paratrooper in a tree. You don't want to do that, right? Yeah, right. Now, I mean, now that being said, jump-capable mechs are... I mean, I love jump-capable mechs. Mm-hmm. If I have a choice on, if I'm given like a pool of mechs to pick from, I'll try to pick as many jump-capable as possible just because of the mobility that they give you mm-hmm. can change mm-hmm. the game in so many ways. Um, especially because, like you said, the facing, you can jump behind other mechs and nail them in the rear armor where it, the armor is the weakest and right. tend to go right into the inner, you know, the internal structure. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, it's it's one of those things with great, you know, with great risks can come great rewards. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it was in my notes and I completely passed it that mechs are all armored, as we talked about earlier. But the armor's always a lot weaker on its on mechs rear um, because they're expected to be facing their enemy. So if you can get around behind a mech, um, it's one way that lighter mechs, if you have a bunch of them. Uh, can sort of go toe-to-toe with those bigger mechs because the bigger, heavier mechs tend to be slower. And you can just imagine these big lumbering brutes. Well, the little guys can zip around behind them and start laying down some damage. Now, sure, the the big mech's going to be able to get some of them and lay them out, but can they turn around and get everyone before it's too late? Well, that's the There's the challenge. Uh, and that David versus Goliath combat uh is is one of my favorite parts of the game you talk about jump capable mechs i talk about little zippy mechs that get behind people and shoot people in the rear for the same thing um but it is a clever system in that mechs can turn their torso um if they have people shooting at them from the rear or flip their arms around so they're facing backwards so there's ways to counter that but uh it's not always 100 percent effective either so yeah as you say there's uh there's there's just a lot of great balance in this game. But anyway, um, did you want to talk about anything else there? Oh, 
uh, infrastructure. So talk to us about why it's important to get through armor besides the obvious. What happens when you start damaging the internals of these battle mechs? So when you sit down with your mech, you have a, a record sheet, mm -hmm. which basically is your armor and internal structure diagram. Mm -hmm. And then inside on the internal structure, you fill in for like where weapons are located, where ammo is stored, mm -hmm. where things like your hand actuators, so shoulder actuators, leg actuators, the engine, and then mm -hmm. heat sinks. Pretty much every piece of equipment a mech has has to go in a spot on the internal structure. That's right. So when you get past the armor and you start doing damage to the internal structure, then you have a possibility of having your equipment damaged. Because yeah. every time you take internal structure damage, there's a chance you get a critical hit. And mm -hmm. on a critical hit, you can either explode their ammo, damage their weapon, you know, um, remove heat sinks, which causes problems with heat management, mm -hmm. which we'll discuss later. Or destroying those actuators that you mentioned before. Which makes your piloting skill checks more difficult mm -hmm. or prevents you from punching and kicking. Or carrying you know, things if it's the mission that you need to pick up a box and get it off the board. Well, if you destroy yeah. their hands, they're not picking up anything, are they? No, they're not. So, yeah, and it depends. The criticals depend on the location. Again, super granular. So, if you get a critical on the person's right arm, you might take out their elbow and take out their hand um, or the weapon they're carrying in that arm. But, you know, it's rare that you'll see ammo in those locations because they're sort of lightly armored. And when you hit ammo, it tends to explode, which is bad because yep. you end up. Uh, all those shots that you haven't fired at your opponent are now blowing up inside you, which is, uh, you know, the last thing you want. And so those tend to be in the heavily, most heavily armored locations. But if you can get into people's torsos and start knocking things out, there's very few things on a, on a torso internal chart that you want destroyed. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, because the bad thing about hitting ammo is you figure out how much ammo's left you figure out how many points of damage each individual, uh, you know, round of ammo does. Mm -hmm. And that's how much damage you're taking. So you literally, your mech ends up exploding out from under you most yeah. times. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't even have to roll the hit, right? You've already, obviously. No, yeah, that's <laughs> already there. Yeah, that's the bad thing. Yeah. So that's often, I mean, and I've heard some people say when playing this game that the game can feel grindy uh, if you are playing and you're just having a slugfest and you're not playing a mission and you're just battling against one person against another and you're just rolling and, oh, here's 10 damage to the right arm. Here's seven damage to the left leg. Here's a couple of points to the center torso. And it can, you know, that it, the game feels like it can take a while um, because you're just randomly ticking locations that you've been hitting. However... I think that is, I, I, I would agree with that if you didn't have the critical system. Um, the second that you start knocking out those internal systems, um, it, the game radically changes um, and mechs de get destroyed way faster than just ticking little boxes on a sheet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. But again, um, because you are rolling for damage location, um, you know, the number of times that, you know, you've been playing, you know, I'll have, I'll be playing and I'll have a mech that's on the ropes and is being surrounded by other mechs and is, you know, about to, about to be taken down. 
And then that mech pulls up its weapon and fires and gets a lucky headshot and takes out one of its opponents. And now it's an even playing field. It can be, the game can feel a little swingy, um, depending on how you, you know, how you roll. But as long as you know going in that this is not a hyper competitive game so much as a fun game, uh, I think you're going to, you know, be a lot happier with it. Would you agree? Oh, yes. Yeah, just because of the intricacy of it, it doesn't really lend itself to being a tournament game. Right. Because of how much record keeping mm-hmm. and, you know, and all all the different turn management things that you have to go through. Exactly. And, and like you said, you can, because it doesn't matter whether you're a 20-ton mech or a 100-ton mech. All heads are what, nine armor mm-hmm. and three internal structure. Yep. So anything, you know, anything bigger than a PPC can take it out in one shot. Yeah, exactly. And even a PPC can take it out in one shot if it gets lucky on the roll. That's right. That's right. Uh, particle projector cannons cost 10 damage or cause 10 damage yes. if, if kids are wondering at home. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, is a, it, is a, it is a game leveler very quickly, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I um I love Now, if we're going to compare BattleTech to a, a contemporary game of its time, Car Wars for example, which was another <laughs> fave of mine at the time, Car Wars um was also required as you put it some some man, you know, some paperwork, a little bit of uh mm-hmm. management on the table to keep track of in order to play the game. But in a way you know, I have such fond memories of Car Wars, and again, it's another game with a wonderfully rich uh, background and wonderful lore, and is really evocative, and you can really get into it. Battletech uh, Battle feels less like a car combat simulator um, than, uh, and more, uh, more like a fun board game, if that makes sense. I know that yeah. there is more accounting to it. Um, but honestly, I would rather play Battletech than Car Wars every day of the week today um, as a gamer because I think it's a much better game system in that it's you're able to play it in a shorter amount of time. It requires less paperwork. Um, it, it's, it's just fun. Um, not that Car Wars wasn't fun back in the day, but given that I've played so many other game systems since then, going back to play Car Wars felt not great if that makes sense. Um, not to disparage one of my favorite games growing up, but um, I think Battletech has aged well in that regard. It has. It really has. Right on. Well, um, let's talk heat. Um, so, Joe, okay. why don't you explain how heat works? Um, why heat? What's, what's the big deal? Okay. So you have, like you said, these giant robots and they're bristling with weapons, mm-hmm. and they're also powered by fusion reactors. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know nuclear, you know nuclear-powered walking robotic robotic tanks. And pretty much everything a mech does generates heat, unless mm-hmm. they stand still and do nothing. That's right. So one of the one of the hidden nuances of the game, and it really is, is heat management. It is. Because if you can learn how to effectively do heat management, that easily can turn the tide of a battle on you. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, are, you know, even though you might have this big 100-ton assault mech, 
very rare is the mech that carries enough heat sinks to dissipate all the heat that these weapons will generate. That's right. Um, and, and as heat know. builds, you have a heat chart for each mech, and as heat builds, all of a sudden your pilot has a harder time um, hitting things because the targeting computers are shutting down. Or um, you know they start to take damage because they're literally cooking in their own mechs. Um, the computer might try and shut the mech down, and they have to hit the override. But if they don't hit the override in time, and you roll to see if that happens, the mech shuts down mid-combat, and then yeah. <laughs> to cool off, that's bad. And and the biggest thing is you're running risks of exploding your ammo mm-hmm. if you carrying any. That's right, and that go back to the comment about how bad ammo explosions are. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, and you know this this might be. This sounds like it might be kind of a good point to also bring up one mm. of the things why I actually like playing some of the later, like 30, 50 to 30, 55 and greater, because mm-hmm. because of some of the stuff they introduced during those timelines, mm-hmm. you have things like triple strength Myomer, yeah, which it brings a whole nother level of nuance to heat management, right? Because with certain items in the later timelines it can be beneficial to ride the red line so to speak mm-hmm. you want to run your mech a little bit hot because you can move faster that's right um you know and it they design some mechs are actually designed around running hot so to speak yeah. because they're built for going up and doing melee combat rather than standing back and shooting mm-hmm. which is uh you know i always thought was a nice juxtaposition because if if you think about the human body you're, you're gonna run a marathon if you're warmed up if you try and run yeah. a marathon not warmed up i mean it's it's not gonna go as well so if you have these um especially and we talked about the synthetic muscles uh the myomer that you're talking about before if you have the special heat activated uh, Myomer, you want, as you say, to run hot. Um, and it, it makes sense, but it kind of f- flies in the face of the traditional logic of the game, um, which, you know, just means that you need, it adds more tactics and the way you have to consider both your mechs and your opponent's mechs on the tabletop, which is cool. I guess some of the later technology also leads to the development of weapons that cause less heat and cause more damage. And so... For me, I always had that because I was so used to playing uh, the Inner Sphere, uh, you know, house, successor house, or mercenary unit against one another. Um, all of those mechs and all those weapons, though there were, God, countless mechs in existence, they all used the same weapon systems. They all used the same heatsink. And so for me, um, it was always a good way to, to sort of balance things out. Um, because some mechs may, and when I was a little kid, when I was first playing this game, I was like, oh, I love that one because it has, you know, uh, two particle projector cannons and an auto cannon. The Marauder was one of my favorites. Um, and, uh, you know, all these extra lasers and does all this damage. Look how great it is. And then you actually play the game and the Marauder ends up being able to fire half of its weapons or then fire maybe two of its big weapons. But then it has to like go stand in a lake and cool off for a minute and like miss a turn of shooting. Because it has to cool off before it can fire again. Otherwise, you're going to cook your pilot. Right. And while I'm Same simplifying that, yeah, exactly. The Warhammer, the other big, uh, the big, you know, traditional, iconic mech of the game. Same problem. Another one of my favorites. 
Um, however, when I was playing a game recently, I had a dragon out on the tabletop, and it has an auto cannon and um, a, you know a set of rockets that fire, yeah. and I was going, wow. I can just run all day with this thing. I'm moving around quickly. And it's not the fastest mech, but it's a no. mid-range mech. But I could fire all of its weapon systems every turn. I'm going, oh, oh, that's why this is here. Oh, that's cool. Um, and that's where the trade-offs are. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't want to have to rely on ammunition, you run with energy weapons. Well, energy weapons generate more heat than mm-hmm. ballistic weapons. That's right. So, you know, you're you're... Your energy weapon weighs less than your ballistic weapon, but it's generating more heat, so you have mm-hmm. to put in more heat sinks. That's right. Or you take a ballistic weapon, add ammo, don't have to add more heat sinks, but you're running the risk of running out of ammo yeah. or having it exploded if something goes internal. That's right. And I guess that resource management is just another layer of depth to the game that really adds to the strategy. Like, ooh, how many weapons do I fire at my opponent at a longer range when I have less of a chance of hit? Or do I try and move closer? But what if my mech only has long-range weapons? Um, you know, do I want to let someone get closer? Do, is, like, how, do I, how do I best manage the situation? And it, it leads to a lot of uh, tactical granularity and strategy on the tabletop that's a lot of fun to play. It really is. Right on. Well, I think we've done a decent job of um, talking through the very basics of the game. I I, I think we've yeah. actually gotten into a little bit more uh, nitty gritty yeah. than I meant to. But um, let's let's back out for a second. Now you um, were saying. Now I, I should back up before I ask you this next question. They did okay. come out with a new version, um, Catalyst. Um, there were several companies after FASA. The original company that owned BattleTech uh, went yeah. bankrupt. A number of companies have owned the license, and the most recent company is Catalyst Games. Now they put out a box game in 2018, 19, um, that is the most recent version, and it has um, some plastic mechs in the box uh, and some, yeah. you know, redone mechs. It is. Uh, I'm looking at the date, 2018, mm-hmm. and. Um, it has the rules in it, and they uh, very and they competitively priced it. It was a very inexpensive box game for what it was, and it sold like hotcakes. You just couldn't get copies of it for a while because everyone and their dog wanted one. Um, because all the old groknards like myself um, and like you uh, came up uh, wanting yeah. to go, like, oh, I want that again. Or I've heard of that <laughs> game. I'm going to go buy it because the mechs were great. Um, oh, yeah. They've, they're really nice sculpts. Mm-hmm. The plastic's a little soft, but it is definitely um, – it is, it is not a bad plastic, if that makes sense. Um, they're They're – a thousand times better though than the old Plaztec Fossa oh God, those plastic are sculpts. Yeah, yes. th- there was no the detail on that was so soft. It was like someone took a model and put it in a microwave for a half an hour, and it was like, oh God, it's me- it's melting. Yep. Um, but yeah, I guess Fassa did a wonderful job of having some beautiful metal and pewter models way back when. Um, yes, and then they tried the plastic route, and it. The technology just wasn't up to snuff for them. It was it. it they just were terrible. Um, 
And that was one thing. So the game back, back way back when came with cardboard stand-ups, and that's how I played forever until the most recent mechs came out. And Catalyst really does has done a wonderful job of updating some of the old mechs um, in a way that makes them look modern, but also represent the sort of older designs that we know and love. But yeah. then um, <sighs> there was, so they, they came up with that, but then they wanted to release more. And to do that, they put out a Kickstarter. And Joe, I'm going to let you take the Kickstarter, man, because okay. um, it, it, it was one of the most successful Kickstarters in gaming in recent years. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah, I think it. I think it was around two and a half million. I don't remember the exact uh, level that mm -hmm. it hit, but I'm thinking. I'm thinking it was like two and a half million. Unbelievable. Um, so yeah, it uh, generated a large amount of money. Mm -hmm. It allowed Catalyst to not only do the clan side of the game with the clan mechs, it's allowed them to go back and revisit all the old designs. Mm -hmm and bring them to a more current aesthetic. Um, and speaking of aesthetics, um, yeah, we, I'm, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact that I actually own the original, like 30, 30, 25 TRO and the 30, 50 TRO that has all the so-called unseen mechs in it. Mm -hmm. And I thought project Phoenix was one of the biggest abominations ever out there. Cause I just totally hated the so-called redesign of those unseen. Yeah. And looking at the newest designs for some of my old favorites, like the Warhammer, the Marauder mm -hmm. and the Phoenix Hawk, I felt that these new designs really do them justice. Right? I mean, but even if we look at the ones from the, the new box game, if we look at like the Shadowhawk oh, yeah. or the Thunderbolt, like those models are fantastic. The Wolverine. They are very nice. Oh, yes, my they God. are very nice. And they nice. look like the, like you look at it and you say, yes, that is a Shadowhawk. Um, there's no, like you look at some of the redesigns of some of the, so FASA kind of had a license for some classic, you know, the, even Robotech, like Robotech, uh, Dugram, Crusher Joe, um, mechs from anime from the 80s, and then they kind of overstepped their license and lost it. And so they were unable to continue to use the designs that they had uh, used for years. Um, and in doing so, if you're a Battletech fan, you're like, oh, cool, my, you know, the, the hero of this novel that I've been loving for years has been you know, piloting a, a Marauder, for example, if we're talking about the Great Death Legion. And you're like, awesome. Oh, what does the Marauder look like? Uh, there's like seven versions of it. And none of them are real looking. Like None of them look like the Marauder on the cover of the book because they don't have the license to use that anymore. Um, but to have, as you say, to go back and to see these mechs look like the old ones and yet they're updated and they have the detail of modern miniatures is outstanding. Yeah, it, it is. They're simply amazing. They really are. Um, and I, for one, I'm willing to wait. I've been seeing like mm -hmm. grumbles, but you know what? The, the delays are not Catalyst's fault. No. I mean, Catalyst couldn't have predicted a pandemic <laughs> exactly. shutting things down for months. And I mean, it's, 
it's silly to yeah. try to hold them accountable for this. You know, things will get back to normal at mm-hmm. some point. We'll get our toys. That's right. And then we can play with them and, you know, be happy. Yeah. So give them a break. Amen. But, but yeah, the the new models are just simply amazing, and the new elementals that they did mm-hmm. are gorgeous. I really hope that they do some of those new elementals in a like a twenty eight mil scale because they still do have um, through Ironwind Metals you can still get the twenty eight mil Steiner and Karita troops, yes. which. I actually happen to have nice. both my original boxes of those as well. Oh, so good. <laughs> and I have a, uh, I might have one of the old armor cast uh, Mad Dog slash Vultures. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that is so cool. Yeah, I guess that's one thing we should mention. Um, we've been largely talking about the the giant robot, but, I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning. This You can play mixed arms in this game. You can have hovercraft. You can have helicopters. You can have jets. You can have uh, infantry or, as you're talking about with the elementals, um, power armor infantry who are jumping around in little jump jets with little lasers attached to their arms themselves, like a little a swarm of uh, annoying... Uh, I mean, yeah, they're brutal, but... It it is a fantastic game for that, and if you look at it, it's it it's is. very eighties, uh, you know, what an eighties interpretation of what a futuristic battlefield would look like, as far as like it's mm-hmm. a hovercraft and it's a a VTOL jet and a helicopter, but uh, it's so cool, and to see you know having tanks and you know being able to fight those battles is really cool, uh, and I and yeah. I'm glad that's one part of the rules that has changed because they've updated those rules to make it a more balanced game, like adding the points values um, by, yeah. you know, changing the rules for those really has opened up the game for a larger gaming experience. I know we've basically yeah. been talking the basic rules today, but I did yeah. want to throw that in there. Yeah. So, but getting back to the models, like mm-hmm. I said, those, it's been a long time coming and yes. I'm happy to see these redesigns. Definitely. Well, let's so. let's talk a little bit about other redesigns um, because okay. we live in a pretty exciting world um, yeah. uh, where, I mean, if anyone has been on YouTube and watching me do the G.I. Joe on the Tabletop series, I've been talking a lot about um, the availability of 3D uh, print uh, free files through Thingiverse and uh, through other platforms to be able to create models that just don't exist otherwise um, for both G.I. Joe, for Star Wars, for whatever else. You see it for Warhammer. You name it. it like People are making 3D files for it. Um, for example, you, you beautiful human being, Joe, uh, just printed me some, uh, some alternate Iron Man models for Marvel Crisis Protocol that uh, I'm going to paint up as some of Tony Stark's alternate suits uh, for uh, for Marvel Crisis Protocol. Do I have the original Iron Man model? Yes. Do I have it painted? Yes. Do I want to paint a black one as stealth armor from the 90s and 80s? Yes. So now I can, because that file exists online. Um, now, the one of the most prolific communities for creation of 3D print files is the Battletech one. And it's amazing because people have been, because there have been the video games for such a long time, uh, and the video games did a good job of updating those classic mechs first, um, people have been taking the designs from those video games and turning them into 3D print files so you can print versions, those updated versions. 
and they look amazing. Um, I recently painted a dragon talking about the dragon that I was talking about earlier. I printed that one, um, and it looks sensational. And it is exactly the dragon that I remember imagining as a kid, except now I have it in figure form. And it's a 3D print file. Now, Joe, what has your experience been with the Battletech printing? Because I know that you have some some good resin printers, and I know yeah. that you've got access to a lot of these files. Well, just to, let me just give you a quick background on my stuff. Please. I've been 3D printing for about two years now. Mm. Um, I originally got what is you know commonly referred to as the filament printer the mm -hmm. fdm which is used for making a lot of terrain i started out making terrain for like star wars legion mm -hmm. um right then when the kickstarter came out though then i started looking up you know mech files yeah and i saw a lot of them out there and i tried some on my standard printer that i had the original one i have mm -hmm. and it did an okay job yeah. but i'm picky about my stuff so i yep. just was like if i can get a printed better i will so i started trolling amazon and a couple of the manufacturers started dropping the prices on their printers and mm -hmm. got into a little bit of a price war for a while and so then i ended up getting myself an anycubic photon yes and yeah and um the <laughs> the ironic thing is i spent ten dollars i think less for the any cubic photon than what i spent for my original fdm printer <laughs> oh man yeah so um i mean that's I just think... because the the printers have come down in price over time right yes. and what oh, the yeah, photon is is a resin printer right yes it is yeah it so... uses the photo uh Oh, I can't remember the actual term, but it's the it uses the liquid resin mm -hmm. that is hardened by a UV light, and you build up things layer by layer. And mm -hmm. yeah, you, after about five six hours, your model pops out. Amazing. And um, now, honestly, since I have my photon, I've the only thing I've ever used my FDM printer for since then was to print up a leopard dropship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, the 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 thing is though what a lot why a lot of people shy away from resin printers is there's a lot of post printing cleanup that needs mm -hmm. to be done you have to wash the prints off in mm -hmm. alcohol to get rid of any residue that's left on there because the resin is a liquid that's and right. it's quite viscous so it's very common to have a thin layer of it still left on the model that is uncured yeah. So you put it in the alcohol, which the alcohol is not really a solvent, but it just allows um, it it allows the uncured resin to come off easier. It does, yeah. Um, so I clean, you know, I I clean it off in the alcohol. I let it dry thoroughly. Um, then I get a bucket of um, hot tap water, as hot as I can get it out of the tap. Mm -hmm. I throw it in uh in the water for three or four minutes that mm -hmm. really loosens up the support material so i can remove all the supports oh that's a great idea and then after you remove the supports you i've got i've actually got a a nail salon curing station mm -hmm. and uh, i throw the prints in there and you know do my final cure in there that's after great. they're uh, final cured i 
I take and I prime them. That shows me any little support marks I need to clean up. Mm -hmm. And then you clean them up and go to town with them. Yeah, man. They look, um, they're, I'm, I'm going to be honest, they're not necessarily as highly detailed as what these plastic miniatures are out of the game of Armored right. Combat because they're based off of MechWarrior Online files. True. But they're they're not bad at all. No. They're actually, and a lot of them, some of them are like really, really nice. And True. I think I've probably printed two to 300 mechs since I got this printer. Oh, but, wow. And not just, I mean, these, they're not all for myself. Uh, you know, I sent you some. And yes, sir. A couple, few other, few other people that I've done some stuff for, so. Yeah. And thank but, you. Uh, uh, and you printed for me. Um, and Panthers. I'm, some Panthers. Now, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, the Panther, there are Panther files on uh, Thingiverse that you can get. But you found someone who'd taken, um, and I followed the thread through, I, I looked at the files myself, someone had, had had made a Panther file a couple of years ago, and then another person had updated it with more detail and th thickening parts up so they're easier to print yep. and be more durable. And then someone else had taken that and taken it apart so that it would be easier to print in pieces, and then, again, added more detail. So people are taking and refining these details again and again and again. So by the time you printed them for me, um, they are, you know, the third or fourth yeah. iteration, which just means, you know, they just keep getting better and better. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's some amazing designers out there um, that are doing these things, and um, I'm very grateful to these designers that are out there, especially because they're, you know, they're putting these up on Thingiverse for free. Mm -hmm. They're doing it as a hobby. They're not doing it as a, um, they're not doing it as like a source of income. Right. And, you know, this, this kind of leads me, um, I don't want to get political on your podcast or stuff, <laughs> but okay. I do want to, I mean, I do want to bring note that, we should be grateful for the people that are putting these designs out there. Yeah. That means we should not be a, a jerk about things and take these people's files, print them up, and then start selling them on eBay, right. which people have been known to do. Oh, yeah. Or on um, Etsy or on and, or on. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I have printed – I've printed stuff for people, and I've – I've charged a nominal fee, which I figured, and the, mm -hmm. the fee that I've charged is literally for the time it takes me to print and process the thing yeah. and the amount of resin. That's, I mean, the, the program I use to prepare the file for printing, yep. it tells me how much resin it's going to use. Exactly. And so I can figure out a cost for how much resin. And then I figure out, well, it's going to take me, 15 minutes or so to prepare the file for mm -hmm. printing. Um, I, you know, my, my real, my real world job pays me X amount of money per hour. Yep. And I feel that my time's easily worth that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that amount divided by four. So that gives me amount for that. Yep. And then I have to figure in the time for post-processing and I'm not, I'm not making money off of it, no. so to speak. Exactly. And, um, I was quite I was quite happy to pay you um, the the nominal fee that you uh, 
uh, chart. I mean, I, I'm happy to pay you for your time and happy to pay you yeah. for the materials and for the use of your wonderful machine for the, the Iron yeah. Man and the Panthers. And yeah, I mean, but I think you're right. I mean, for what I paid you for that, uh, for what, seven or eight models? Seven models. I have seen models go for twice that for one on, yeah. on Etsy or on eBay. And you just go, you know, what are you charging for? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's as you say, I, I think that is a very good point. Um, for example, the, the gentleman who makes almost all the G.I. Joe files that I use um, mm -hmm. on his Etsy or on his, sorry, Thingiverse page says very clearly, I will not take your money. Please, I do this. I do this out of love for the original, you know, material. Yeah. Um, if, you know, please support, um, you know, local, you know, if our, you know, if there's an opportunity yeah. for you to support our troops um, yeah. in real life, do that instead. Don't don't try and send me money. I'm not doing this for that. Uh, right. And as a result, you know, he really doesn't want people charging for his work either, um, yeah. which makes sense. Um, yeah, because he doesn't own and the I'm, IP. I mean, he's just yeah. Making... And, you know, and I know there's a lot of contention out there. A lot of people will be yelling, you know, probably yelling at the speakers yep. when this comes out that I'm, you know, I'm pirating from the people producing the stuff, you know, for mm -hmm. Catalyst Game Labs, and. And honestly, I printed these up so I can be playing while I'm waiting for my stuff that's coming from the mm -hmm. Kickstarter. I have bought, I've bought like four copies of the game of Armored Combat. Yep. So I have four sets of the minis from there. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I'm waiting for the stuff from the Kickstarter. Exactly. So I'm not, not supporting Catalyst. I'm doing this as well as Amen. supporting Catalyst. Yeah. Well, I don't have four copies of the Armored Combat game. I think I have I have two, and I have two of the starter that had alternate mechs in it. So I have four copies, uh, four boxes from Catalyst alone. And as soon as they start putting out Lance Packs, oh, you better believe I'm going to get in on some oh, yeah. of that. So, I mean, again, um, I agree. I, I think this is just a nice addition to the Battletech universe rather than a taking away from it. Um, yeah. And as you say, those new mechs, the detail is astonishing. I can't wait to see the new... I mean, they've been leaking um, pictures of the images that they are going to be turning into those mechs uh, in recent yeah, weeks. Yeah, the renders to, are really nice. Oh, they're so good. And so I'm looking forward to seeing all those uh, in person. Well, man, I hate to do this to you, but I think uh, our time is almost to a close. Uh, okay. Thank you so much for tackling such a broad topic. Um, no, no problem. It's one uh, one quick thing though please. before you go. What's your top five favorite mechs? Oh God, I was afraid you were gonna ask something like that. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna go off a historical list, um, okay. rather than what I think now, because I'm still kind of figuring out what I like. Given um, okay. now that I've grown up and I actually know what I'm doing. Um, my my and I, I think this falls into the from all of my love of the um, the novels uh, from back in the day. I have to say, you know, of course, the Marauder and the Warhammer um, mm -hmm. uh, are, you know, fan faves from way back when I've always loved those. Uh, and I've always loved um, the Centurion, uh, especially one in particular. Um, Yen Lo Wang. That's it. Um, <laughs> the the uh, the specially AC twenty armed one from uh, yeah. the Solaris games. 
So I love those. Look, I love the locust. Um, I think it's ridiculous. You know, just two little legs with a little tiny gun running around the place. The lightest, most ridiculous <laughs> mech ever. Love it. Um, and, mate, I'd, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed. Let's go for a middle-of-the-range mech. Um, how about a Shadowhawk? Again, I think okay. it all comes down to romantic faves um, yeah. from the novels. But how about you? How about you? What are your top five? Okay. Number one on my list is got to be the vulture slash mad dog. Yeah. It has, for me, it has almost an ideal mix of mm -hmm. weaponry for, you know, a, a fluid engagement because totally. it's got the two LRMs and then it's got large and medium pulse lasers. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge pulse laser fan. Yeah. They're cool. Um, then number two out of my favorites is actually an inner sphere mech mm -hmm. and it's the hatchet man. Yes. Because just the whole idea behind developing a mech to literally go up and bash it's, yeah. you know, bash a, a mech sized ax into another mech. Was the hatchet is... man or the ax man? I think it was the ax man that had the, the first mech to ever come with a club built in. Like in the game. No, it's rules, actually the hatchet man came hatchet? first. Okay. That, hatchet so, man came first yeah. and the ax, ax man was later because it was actually um, based on the highly successful hatchet man. There you go. Yeah. But that was that thing because you could pick up, like, if your arm got blown off your mech. Um, yeah, one of your you other could. mechs, if you had a hand, could pick it up and swing it at people like a baseball bat. Well, then they actually yeah. incorporated that into a design um, for just those couple mechs. Brilliant idea. Love it. Yeah. Um, third would be that one of yours is the Shadowhawk. I've nice. always had a soft spot in my heart for the Shadowhawk mm -hmm. because I found when I was playing with that, that is the one weapon you could run around all day, jump around, mm -hmm. fire off everything and not build up any heat. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, yeah. Now, did other mechs in its weight class do things better? Yes. yes. But for just an all-arounder, yeah. it was a very good, solid mech. Yeah. Um, because, and then the last two, because I'm clan, I'm going for these, is if you're, if you're going to be a clanner, you, you can't have, you know, a list without having the Timberwolf yep. slash Mad Cat on Mad it. Cat. And then a surprising one you might find for me is the Cougar. Um, I'm trying to think, is that that's a light mech, isn't it, or am I making? Yeah, that? it's a third. It's a thirty-ton yeah. uh, mech, and it actually started out with Clan Jade Falcon, who mm -hmm. I'm not the most, the biggest fan of. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was originally built by them, and uh, it's got it's just got a bunch of configurations. But the standard configuration is uh was it two large lasers and two srm4s mm -hmm. and you know it's a it's another one of those quick max yeah so, so good. yeah really good so yeah those are those are my top five i'm glad you asked that even though i was like oh god don't ask me that question <laughs> Do it again. but it was one of those things that and um i'm gonna i know we're trying to wrap up but i'm still gonna ask you this question um, being an old grognard and having spent so much time, you know, as a kid reading the books um, yeah. and reading the source books, uh, some of my favorite game books growing up were the Kellhounds and the Wolf Dragoons uh, mm -hmm. source books. I just read them over and over and over and over again. And to be able to come back to it, I was astonished that A, 
you know, 20 years since looking at a Battletech book that A, I remembered almost all the mech names, and B, I remembered almost all the weapons on all the mechs and went, well, what? Like, how did I remember that that mech has an autocannon 10? I, I, you know, it was just maybe it's because I read the um, the art, the technical files over and over yeah. and over as a kid. But I can remember like how many heat sinks mechs have, how how fast they move and how far they jumped. But it was coming back to this game more than any other has really felt good. In uh, it's it's been yeah. it's like going home. Have you had a similar it experience? Is. Yeah, I really have. It was like. It was like uh, hooking up again with an old friend you haven't seen for yes. Y- years. Yes. And man, those Stackpole model uh, novels, um, they, you know, <laughs> you, yeah, you got to put them in their they're time and their good. place in the 80s, but they're good. Uh, yeah, they're they're fun. And, they're, uh, and kids, if you're uh, quarantining at home and you're wanting to listen to something while you're painting, um, the Warrior series or um, the Clan Invasion series, uh, the Blood... No- uh, Blood Legacy uh, series, I believe is what it's called, by Michael Stackpole. I think they're all on Audible. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend. A lot of fun. Uh, you know, got to take it with a little grain of salt if you've never listened to them before until <laughs> you get your sea legs. But, yeah, they're cool. A lot of fun. Well, I think uh, I think our time is actually well and truly done. Um, but, yeah. yeah, I think we need to say goodnight. But, Joe, thank you so sure. much again for coming on. Oh, not a um, problem. It's been, yeah, it's been a blast to go down memory lane. Oh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. And, guys, I know that we've only scratched the surface. It's weird. The I know that in some regards we went down some weird specific loopholes, um, you know, as far as mechanics or history, but you kind of got to and to talk about how the game works. Um, would I recommend this game um, if you've never played it before? Yeah, I would. It's fun. It's a great game. Um, I would enjoy playing. I have enjoyed playing this. Um, for if you played it before, is it worth going back to? A hundred percent. I would say so. Yeah. Every day of the week. Um, I'm sure I'm going to talk about BattleTech again at some point. I can think yeah. of a few people who uh, may want to have that conversation with me. But um, yeah. I think this has been a great. Um, opening conversation and joe again thank you so much for coming on brother oh not a problem just a just another quick thing real Mm. quick for anybody thinking about getting into the battletech game and um you know dipping your toe in so to speak Mm -hmm. if you've never played it before make sure you get the beginner's box and just play with the rules in the beginner's box because they leave out a lot of things like some of the more like the heat management and some of that stuff to just to give you the feel of the universe and then go and get your game of armored combat and go jump fully into the pool. Well, it gives you two mechs to start with, and it's unbelievably priced. Um, I, I'm not sure what it is in the U.S. In Australia, we have to pay a huge markup. But what yeah. do you know what it costs in the U.S.? Um, you can find it a lot of places around $15. I think it's exactly. $20 retail. Yeah, I was going to say, I think most places are about 15 or 20 um, so guys fit. I mean, if you want to try out a new game, how many times do you get to try out most of the rules with models and maps and the whole thing for 15 or 20 bucks? It's amazing. Highly recommend it. And if you want to jump in a little bit bigger and get eight mechs rather than two mechs, um, the game of armored combat, I think retails in the U S for 40 or 50. Um, I believe it's around 50 two yeah. weeks ago. Amazon had them for $15, and I picked up two copies then. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so cool. I I'm very strongly thinking about uh, collecting the mechs to make a uh, the Grey Death Legion company or the Kellhounds first company. And I'm just thinking, oh God, so so many options, so many games. Anyway, on that note, I think it's it's time to once I start wish listing, it's time to go. But yeah. um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know I've been doing a lot of Warlord casts recently. Um, there is another good one coming up next week. Uh, I. I I don't want to give it away, but it's an old favorite guest, and it's going to be awesome. And I've got a really special cast dice up my sleeve for uh, for the uh, for the future. So uh, there's a lot of good things to look forward to. Um, but thank you for listening in these crazy times. And we at Cast Dice hope that you are well, and that uh, you stay well, and that you and yours are safe and healthy in these crazy times. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as, as our good buddy Casey says. I hope that your beverages are cold. I hope your dice roll hot. But when you're playing the games that we know and love, more than anything else, I hope that you're having fun. Good night. Are gone and attract my home.